welcome to episode 417 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with actress, writer, director, musician, and all-around cool cat, Pamela Sabal. We discuss her trek as a youngster from Detroit to an accomplished artist in Queens, New York, bellowing out tunes in the basement, a love of storytelling, losing her sight when she was 14, faking it and not faking it, being trapped, finding independence, taking risks, serendipity, signposts, among other things. A wonderful conversation with Pamela Samba on this week's episode. We have an EWSA titled Rainbows, and we share an excerpt of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, and also share a poem called Warming. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it then. Episode 417 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours.
rainbows. Sanchez, can the earth take all my fear and pain and transform it into trees, flowers, grass, and a gentle breeze again? I see basketballs, a football, a soccer ball, and a scooter on the front yard pitch. The neighbor's wheelbarrow is transfixed and tilted in a moss-covered ditch with a puddle of water pooling as an April shower gathers there. I feel so tired. My head aches from the inside out. These lips are dry. A sad taste of middle age is in my mouth. These early spring baseball days leave me wondering about this phase of my life. Why am I here? What is this strife? And I know it is not to be oversimplified or glorified. No whining throughout. Come on, come on, baby now. Twist and shout. I have old friends, been around since puberty, who text song lyrics to me from tunes we listen to together and beat up VWs, Hondas, a Maverick, and various Subarus. Those words conjure times and bonds that speak to me, buoy me, remind me of what I come from and where and why I am running, the ways that I am. When honesty is prominent and my lineage as a peasant is clear, this journey seems somewhat sanctified. There are constant rainbows in the center of some of our sights. And no matter how we might look around them, they won't relent. Not to be too tight or contrite. There is a sense of love in me at the moment, and I don't know how long it will last. The grass is getting high, and so am I, as I rub this burning sty in my eye. Someday, perhaps, we cave dwellers will truly fly and know how to do more than struggle to barely get by.
Hello. Hello, Pamela Sabah. Is that you? Yes, it is. It's Hello, you, EW. <laughs> you know my voice. All right. <laughs> it's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, uh, it is. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you. And uh, before we get started, let me share a little background with the listeners. Mm-hmm. Pamela Sabah is an award-winning actor, playwright, singer, songwriter, and director. She received her MFA in acting from Rutgers University, where she studied under renowned teachers Maggie Flanagan and William Esper, and has been working professionally as a performer and storyteller for over two decades. Throughout her New York City-based career, Pamela has originated roles for contemporary American playwrights the likes of Samuel D. Hunter, Becca Brunstetter, and John Gore, and has been lauded for her interpretations of classic roles such as Shakespeare's Ophelia and Portia, not to mention Horatio and Rosencrantz. She is the first professional low-vision actor to have played the title role in Brian Friel's Molly Sween, a, quote, groundbreaking performance with Keen Company Off-Broadway, named Best Revival of 2019 by the Wall Street Journal. On film, Pamela has starred in the award-winning film shorts Lefty and Lucy, Stuck in the In-Between, Pamela Salome Me, and she co-starred with legendary comedian Jackie Mason in the independent features One Angry Man and Jackie Goldberg, P.I. On TV, Pamela had recurring roles on Daytime's One Life to Live, Guiding Light, and was featured on ABC's What Would You Do? Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Pamela Sabah. So, it's uh, again, it's great to have you on the show, talking with us from your apartment in New York City, I suppose. Yeah, Queens, Astoria, Queens, to be exact. One of the most diverse places on the planet, I understand. You, you got it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, tell us how you got there to Queens. Were you born in New York City? No, I wasn't. I was born in uh, Detroit, Michigan, actually. And I grew up in um, a subdivision north of the city of Detroit. Um and it was uh, not, um, <laughs> it didn't have a lot of culture. It was, I used the word subdivision and not just suburb because um, it was very much one of those developed, uh, nondescript sort of landscapes with strip malls and um, fast food joints and parking lots and everything, you know, built to the size and scale of the automobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it was, it was uh, lovely and, and, and all of that. I mean, I had a, a lovely childhood, but I always dreamed of moving or living in a city, especially New York city. And, um, and was sort of uh, the, where I grew up was in between the country uh, where my mom was from and the the city where my dad was from. And um, I loved both of those places. I, I um, felt very strongly about both the country and the city, but that sort of in-between no-man's land left me wanting <laughs> more. Um, 
so yeah, so I, I was there. I went to Wayne State University down in Detroit mm-hmm. um, uh, for my undergrad and um, uh, slowly and circuitously made my journey east. Um, and after graduating from Rutgers, as you mentioned in the bio, I uh, finally made the move to New York City. So theater, was that something you were into from a young age as a, as a high schooler or middle school? Well, um, yeah, it, it wasn't as straightforward. Like, I always loved performing. I also loved writing. Again, there's always this theme theme for me of being in between. So I was a very, I liked to uh, belt out show tunes in my basement. And I was really um, influenced by movie musicals and watching like the, the Tonys on TV and seeing those Broadway numbers. And, um, but, and then I also had this other side that was kind of shy and liked to um, uh, write and sort of be on the outside looking in Um or inside looking out, <laughs> observing. Um, and uh, the the thing that sort of pulls all of these aspects of my personality together is the love of storytelling. Um, and music kind of is a chord that goes through all of that and um, binds it all together. Um, so out of all those multi-hyphenates that you <laughs> list in the beginning of my bio, um, the common thread really is is storytelling. So, but where I um, went to high school, there was no drama program. Oh. It was, it was no, yeah, no. There was, <laughs> it, it, the subdivision where I grew up was very industrial, and um, and we we had no budget for drama, uh, we, although we had this beautiful auditorium, it was never put to use. And we had things like Metal Shop and Auto Tech, but no drama. <laughs> so um, I kind of went on a uh, quest, really, that um, had to do a lot with the loss of my vision at, or my central vision, to be more exact, at um, age 14. And... <sighs> The uh, what I had to do to sort of come to terms and um, figure out what I really wanted, it also it coincided with me um, following, finding out who I was in order to really follow my destiny, which was to live in New York and pursue a life in the arts. When you say losing your central vision, uh, mm-hmm. how how does that uh, differentiate from losing your vision completely? <clears throat> right. <clears throat> well, so when um, I was fourteen, I I was diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, a recessive genetic disorder. So first of all, it was it came out of the blue. And I started seeing this little dancing rainbow blind spot in my central vision. And um, at the time, I was well on my way to full-on rebellion. And I was uh, 
into the punk rock scene and I was trying to, uh, I was in middle school and, um, again, this in between place. Um, and you know, so I was trying to put on this badass persona and then, um, I, I'm starting to see this little, uh, flickering uh, thing. And I thought maybe it was because I was being a little too wild and shouldn't be doing some of the things I was doing. And, um, too many whippets. Yeah. You, you know, well, <laughs> smoking something with the girls at the bus stop and, you know, the older ninth grade girls or whatever. And, um, uh, it, but it, it got worse and worse. And then at one point, uh, I brought home my report card and my mom was freaking out because I'd gotten a bad grade, which I didn't usually do. And it was an algebra, which was really um, impossible for me to really see these numbers. But it, it was happening. It, it happened actually kind of quickly when in the grand scheme of things from um, the beginning of eighth grade to the end of eighth grade. I had had this this blind spot was growing sort of supplanting my central vision and so when my mom was yelling at me I said you know it might have something to do with the fact that when I look at you your nose disappears and that sort of sent me on this huge like I underwent a battery of tests to figure out what it was and I was finally diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration so at the beginning of eighth grade I could I could read um from textbooks and I could read distance I could see what was on the chalkboard but by the end of eighth grade I could still see that there was something there I still had my peripheral vision but my central vision I could see that there was writing up there but I couldn't decipher what it said because central vision is where you um, do that detailed stuff like reading. It's what you need to drive. It's how you recognize faces. It's um, uh, that's so that is the difference. It, it's um, that place where you focus in and can do that detailed stuff. And instead, I had this dancing <laughs> rainbow, multicolored blind spot in where my central vision had once been. So in between in um, 100%. And that is, that's sort of the, the, it, it led to being, um, in between fully blind and fully sighted and, um, and just added to that feeling that I already had of, of being in between. But I, I, it also was really hard to, explain to people um what it was how it how I saw things what it was I actually what my vision actually was it was impossible to explain it and I was also grappling with how it was I was being seen right because people uh think they know what blindness is but they don't realize most people don't realize that it's a spectrum you know that there is something in between fully blind and fully sighted and um and then people have many misconceptions about what blindness is so the the fact that i had peripheral vision um it it means i don't always need the white cane to negotiate my surroundings um but 
because I don't have central vision, I can't read. A lot of things are set up in this world with visual guides, signs, and and um, people you know, will talk to you from across the room. And so my behavior would often be misinterpreted as... Um, I was either, you know, aloof because I ignored you because I didn't <laughs> bother to wave to you when you waved to me, um, or uh, um, I was thought that I was drunk or stoned or super shy, um, and but I couldn't say like, no, I'm just, I'm just low vision. I, you know, I, I, the is why I, I wrote ultimately ended up writing my play Immaculate Degeneration was to try to come to terms with and articulate that what it is to be in between and how how does how did that inform your decision making when you were thinking about being in the arts did your parents get a little extra concerned about perhaps the 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 possibility of that and and you uh, investing yourself in that when you went out into the world and studied and 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 auditioned uh what kind of how did that inform those experiences right it's all you can't have one without the other it absolutely is is a part of who i am and a part of my journey um <clears throat> well my parents um really when when the uh, the the onset of the macular degeneration i was i took this very like i even doubled down on the badass um approach right and i was like you're not going to tell me what to do you're not going to put me in a special school um and i sort of faked it i got my friends to to um, you know, tell me what was going on, did reconnaissance missions. Um, and it wasn't until everyone underwent the sacred rite of passage where I came from, which was getting their driver's license, Mm. (laughs) that I realized, holy God, I am trapped. I am trapped. Because where I lived, as I mentioned in the beginning, was not geared for pedestrians in any way, shape, or form. And it was a suburb of Detroit, the Motor City, right? And here I was, um, I wasn't going to be able to drive. And that's when I really panicked and thought, no, I can't just fake my way through. And luckily, because that that would have gotten me absolutely nowhere, I came to realize. Um, But I had to realize what it was I wanted because I had to work extra hard to get it. And I had to figure out a, a way to gain my independence um, um, and get out of these sort of chains that I felt this, this, uh, it, it put me in without being able to drive with having no way to get around of my own accord. Um, and so I had to know, like wh- I had to really plot a course and in order to do that, I had to come to terms with like this silly image that uh, this tough chick image was like that wasn't going to work because I had to admit that I had I needed assistance in order to gain the independence. I had to say like I can't see this or I can't read this. I'm gonna I need the tools 
to to get to get what I want if I can figure out what that is. Um, so so I realized um, I and also if if acting was the thing because as as I was approaching graduation of high school, I I really um, started to put those things together that I mentioned before about storytelling and. Uh, I felt this this pretty strong calling to become an actor, and I knew that I couldn't really um, act with an attitude. This tough armor crap that I was putting, manufacturing this image of cool. What was really cool, I realized, was to uh, to take a, a risk, and the risk for me was. Uh, doing what I loved the most, but what scared the life out of me. I knew that that was really being cool. Mm -hmm. To admit I needed help, to get what I wanted, and go for what I wanted, even if uh, <laughs> I had no idea how to get it. I mean, like I said, there was no drama program in my school. Um, so, you know, my parents were kind of just glad that I was... Um, taking control of my life and um they were supportive but they had no idea how to help me they weren't in in the arts at all um and so I went to uh I did it through going slowly through college I um started out with an at, at a community college and kind of figured out, okay, am I going to, where am I going to go? How am I going to do this? And I, and a lot of this is, is serendipitous. A lot of this, these, these, these little, you know, helping hands were there as I think Joseph Campbell said or something along the way, when I would take the risk to go for it, the signposts were there for a period of time. Um, that helped me that I like I was listening to the radio one day in my little suburban room and um, heard about this acting class that was being held down in the city. And I went to the class and I was like, look, I don't know if I can do this because also because I couldn't make eye contact because um, in order to, to look somebody in the eye, it means I have to put that blind spot um where their head is. So it looks like I'm looking at you, but I can't see what you're giving back to me. So then I would make these, um, I look away in order to like catch glimpses and uh, you know, all of this, I thought, uh, are they going to think I look at them funny? Am I, you know, is it, am I going to really, um, be judged for this or, or whatever it, 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 it uh, was a huge thing. It's a small, subtle, uh, thing when you think about it, that, establishing eye contact with someone but it it really uh scared me <laughs> and I also couldn't read uh the script I couldn't do cold readings um because no matter how large the print I was always looking around this blind spot and there was no way I could read fast enough to act a scene so I went to this class and this teacher she I said look I don't know if I'm going to be staying um I can't make eye contact and I can't read and she's like Cut the Pamela. 
excuse my language, sorry. <laughs> um, but that's what she said. And she's like, come here. And she gave me a Sharpie and some paper. This was back, you know, before uh, all the technology we have now. Like, screen readers were just coming out, but nobody had PCs at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was still DOS and all of that, you know. Um, and certainly no smartphones and, and all of that whatnot. So um, she read me the scene. Uh, it was a it was a audition class, a cold reading scene class, and uh, it was uh, it was a scene from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And um, she's like, "Now go memorize it." So during the class, I, I I wrote out the lines. I went and I memorized my lines, and I. I did the scene with a guy in class who became one of my best friends. And the other um, best friend of mine was in that same class. And that same teacher ended up being one of the head acting teachers at Wayne State. So you see all of these things, sort of these Mm -hmm. stepping stones kind Mm -hmm. of appeared to me as I would step to one, then the other one would would be there. And um, I just had to have the guts to... (laughs) to keep jumping those, those stones. Um, and, uh, that Wayne State, then I, I auditioned and I was accepted. Um, I, I got through these, these audition processes and was, um, found myself being accepted in to Rutgers, uh, which I knew was 45 minutes away from New York. And, uh, I, I also, I, I had like crises uh, of faith, but um, I, I, I had this dream where um, I was, well, it's too long. I won't go into it, but the, it, basically the, I was this, this young boy with um, plates welded over his eyes and his mouth. And I was, um, it was like medieval and I was trapped in this dungeon and, and there I was all of these characters in the dream. There was a, 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 a knight and a princess and, um, and there was a wizard and the wizard healed. He did some magic spell and, and put this, um, brew on from this cauldron, uh, over the plates and these metal plates that were welded over my eyes and mouth fell away. And I felt this amazing sense of freedom. And, uh, then I could hear the jailer coming down the hall. And by the way, this dungeon was the room I grew up in (laughs) and there were no bars on, on the door. I could just see a shadow falling in and I put the plates back over my eyes and back over my mouth. And, um, and I realized when I woke up what that dream was saying. And it was like, I would rather keep myself blind and mute than risk going out past the door, past the shadows, and, and go out and really try to go for it. So, um, so, so I did. S- I, I, you, I went past. <laughs> you said, I'm not going to fall into that dream. I'm going to transcend that. I'm going to transcend that. I'm going to cross the threshold, come what may. Um, it's odd. You know, you say dream, and it's actually the antithesis of what you really were dreaming. Yeah. In a way, it's like I followed my dreams kind of literally, or I listened to 
my dream in order to follow my dreams. <laughs> yeah, and now you're living that. You're living that, and you have been for decades in New York mm -hmm. City. Very mm -hmm. successful. Uh, Pamela Sabah, by the way, we're talking to in case you tuned in late. And um, uh, fascinating story, and I can tell that you're an artist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and so many, so many ways, uh, the way you think, the way you communicate, it's wonderful. Uh, I'm sure um, I haven't had the opportunity to see your written work uh, uh, staged, uh, hopefully I can in the near future. Um, mm. uh, right now, given the pandemic, you know, I know you're involved with uh, several different uh, theaters, one in particular, uh, Theater Breaking Through um, barriers. barriers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anything going on there? And what we only believe it or not, we only we, we don't have a lot of time left in our talk this go around. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. We understand how you got there, and, and yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, theater. So you know, working um, in the city, I, I as soon as I got to the city, I, I auditioned for this company that at the time was called Theater by the Blind, still TBTB, Theater by the Blind. Um, but they were an integrated company with uh, sighted, low vision, and blind actors all working together. Um, and so approached material in a way with accessibility in mind. And... Um, in 2008, we decided to expand the mission, and because we always believed in integrated, being integrated and inclusive, so we decided to expand the mission to include performers of all disabilities um, and still still being integrated. So, I work with them uh, on and many wear many hats within the company. Um, and right now we're we've been doing these virtual playmakers intensives um, that started last May after lockdown, and it was a way for writers and actors and directors to to get together to um, speak to what was going on. Uh, they would be randomly paired. And the writer would would write a short play and um, sort of speaking to what what was happening with the pandemic or what what was going on in their lives, um, write for the actors that they were randomly paired with, and then they would perform it over Zoom and on Facebook. Um, and right now we're going into our fifth and final virtual playmakers intensives. We do these um, live as well, but this this has been really really uh interesting and um it's just it's yielded some wonderful work and we've been able to work with we've expanded even more because we're able to work with actors from all over the globe um so it's one good thing that came out of this crazy time mm -hmm. and um uh, so this time i i've acted in the first one i directed in the last one and i'm going to be writing and this one, and I'm uh, very excited and scared, but going back to my old motto, you know, if it scares me, but I love it, I should do it. <laughs> you know, I have to do it. That's right. So. 
I like that <laughs> motto. And um, is there any way for someone to access these performances? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so the website is just easytbtb.org. And um, it will, the VPI5 recap, um, I think is going to be the name, something like that. But it is VPI5, Theory Breaking Through Barriers, tbtb.org. And it will be um, starting at the end of May. All right. That's excellent. Uh, you know, I'm going to check it out. And uh, I, I've had a wonderful time talking with you. We're, we're just about out of time this go-round. I'm sure... I would love to have another conversation. It would be great to have another conversation with you in the future. Oh, my God. I would love that so much. I I really would just love that. And I, yeah. Yeah, it's, you have a great energy. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it it goes too quickly, usually. But uh, you shared so much much, uh, insight as to, what drives you and your own journey uh a fascinating conversation and if you have any closing thoughts to share with the listeners please do um well i'm just looking forward i think now is a time of great possibility um and as we're sort of come out blinking back into communal engagement i i just say you know i'm i'm let's stay open to the possibilities of of what this new theater can look like. And and thank you, EW, because um, somehow you listen and you ask questions, and, and I wasn't expecting to go on such a journey with you today, but, um, but I thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Pamela Sabah, thank you so much. Talk with you again soon. Take care. Okay, wonderful.
an excerpt from David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. When she concludes by asking them to pray for her, it almost doesn't sound corny. Gately tries not to think. Here is no cause or excuse. It is simply what happened. The final speaker is truly new, ready. All defenses have been burned away. Smooth-skinned and steadily pinker. At the podium, her eyes squeezed tight. She looks like she's the one that's the infant. The host, white flaggers, pay this burnt public husk of a newcomer the ultimate Boston AA compliment. They have to consciously try to remember, even to blink, as they watch her, listening, IDing, without effort. There's no judgment. It's clear she's been punished enough. And it was basically the same all over, after all, out there. And the fact that it was so good to hear her, so good that even Tiny Ewell and Kate Gompert and the rest of the worst of them all sat still and listened without blinking, looking not just at the speaker's face but into it, helps force Gately to remember all over again what a tragic adventure this is that none of them signed up for. They'd been the odd couple of libations, the muscled fitness guru and the tall, slope-shouldered optician director, often down there in the weight room till all hours, sitting on the towel dispenser, drinking, Lyle with his caffeine-free Diet Coke, Incandesa with his wild turkey, Mario literally standing by in case the ice bucket ran out, or himself needed moral support getting to the urinal. Mario often fell asleep as the hour got severe, drifted in and out, slept upright and leaning forward, weight borne by his police lock and lead receptacle. James Incandesa was one of those profound personality change drinkers who seemed quiet and centered and almost affectless when he was sober, but would move way out to one side or the other of the human emotional spectrum when drunk and seem to open up in a way that was almost injudicious. Sometimes, libated late at night with Lyle in the newly outfitted ETA weight room, incandescent open up and pour his heart's thickest chime right out there for all to be affected and potentially scarred by. Example, one night, Mario, leaning way forward into the police lock's support, drifted awake to the sound of his father, saying that if he had to grade his marriage, he'd give it a C-. This seems injudicious in the extreme, potentially, though Mario, like Lyle, tends to take data pretty much as it comes. Lyle, who sometimes would start to get tipsy himself, as himself's pores began to excrete the bourbon, often brought some Blake out, as in William Blake, during these all-night sessions, and read Incandesa Blake, but in the voices of various cartoon characters, which himself eventually started regarding as deep.
Carts lined up in an April snow. Political signs poked into the ground, no matter which way you go. Up the road sets a towering pile of coal to be burned still, even though we all know.
And there you have it, episode 417 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Pamela Sabah. Also, David Foster Wallace. And these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Booker T, Bikini Girl, Maria Callas, ACDC, Tom Waits, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.